out there busting Krakens. Welcome to the Kraken Busters, where we explore the history of the U.S. sea monster conflict of the 1940s and 1950s. This is episode 10, Secession, 1947. I'm Keith Pilly. Uh, before I get going, though, I wanted to just do a little bit of housekeeping here. First, I wanted to say, if you have listened this far, thank you. Um, you know, this is a long time to stick with a complicated history and uh, I really appreciate that you know people have um, thanks so much for doing that and uh, you know if you're a person who has helped spread the word I really appreciate that too I'm gonna try to lay off the haranguing but um, you know it, it is extremely appreciated just every time anyone hits play on anything um, and that I do have a quick bit of listener uh, response slash clarification Steve in Apple Valley pointed out that uh, back in episode 8 so part 2 of the second battle of Pearl Harbor I kind of muffed the matter of Dennis Young's rank remember Young was the pilot who intentionally crashed a B-17 into the kelpman at second Pearl Harbor in the narrative I kept referring to him as Major Dennis Young but that's only sort of correct he was an Air Corps captain at the time of the battle, and his promotion to major was a posthumous one, um, as the military just kept heaping praise on him after after Second Pearl Harbor. So I, I should have been more clear about that, and uh, thanks for calling it out, Steve. Right on, then. Last week, we took stock of what happened in the Pacific after the combined disasters of Operation Typhoon and Second Pearl Harbor. The United States functionally found itself forced to withdraw from all its outposts in the Pacific Ocean with a range of consequences for the people left behind. Also, Howard Hughes was eaten by a giant octopus. R.I.P. Uh, this week, boy, that, uh, that military governor of Hawaii sure didn't seem happy about the withdrawal of naval support, did he? Uh, so, you know, how could that decision have gone wrong? Stateside... Much of the rest of 1947 passed in an uneasy period of equilibrium. Along with naval activity, shipping in the eastern and central Pacific had essentially ceased, including point-to-point -point shipping along the west coast of the United States. On the bright side, this lack of seaborne traffic meant that shipping losses plummeted. There simply weren't that many ships on the sea to lose to sea monsters. But of course, the de facto blockade had multiple enormous downsides. The utter loss of American influence in the Far East was one, but one that largely went unremarked in the average American household. Of much greater concern was the massive stateside economic recession, triggered by the shipping slowdown, building on the already significant slowdown that had been caused quite a bit earlier by the loss of the Panama Canal. In some cities, the jobless rate broke 30%, harkening back to the worst days of the Great Depression. Manufacturing centers closed down as goods piled up unsold on loading docks. Produce sections of supermarkets developed gap-toothed bare sections as the flow of fruit from Central America dried up. The seafood market, of course, similarly collapsed. Around the country, discontent simmered. Rare was the week in 1947 when a major newspaper didn't run an editorial urging Harry Truman to consider stepping down for the good of the country. Civil unrest erupted in cities throughout the Midwest through the summer, 
as food lines turned into food riots. Order was generally restored in each case after some property damage and often a few deaths, but the sense throughout the country was palpable that the center wasn't holding and that things were beginning to fall apart. Truman reportedly frequently lapsed into monologues in the White House, rhetorically asking whoever happened to be present how the hell FDR had managed to do it. Much later, in 1954, Felicity Pearson of Ukiah, California, spoke to the FCDP's Oral History Project. Quote, I think I was more scared in 1947 than I ever was during the war. I mean, in 41 and 42, we had a few months of being scared that the redacted were going to land on the coast and move in. But that fear went away. And from then on, the war was just a terrible thing that was going on without us being afraid that something was going to happen to us in our homes. 47 was different. It really felt like everything was falling apart. I remember going to the market and seeing the empty bins where there used to be bananas. The first time it was no big deal, but it kept happening and it kept spreading. With a lot of these things, I don't think there were actually shortages even, but people got scared by the idea that there were going to be shortages, so then they started panic buying and caused their own shortages like a self-fulfilling prophecy. There was a stretch in the summer of 47 where you couldn't buy a bag of dry beans to save your life, or toilet paper for some reason. Ukiah didn't get hit as hard as some of the coastal towns, but the depression still felt as bad as the 30s had been. My husband was out of work for most of 47 and 48, and we just barely held it together with the money he could make from odd jobs and occasionally selling off stuff that we had. I had to give up a bunch of family heirlooms, including a necklace that had been handed down since my great-grandmother, but it was worth it because it kept us and our kids alive. But it was scary. These men would hold rallies downtown where they would just shout terrible, insane things about tyranny and how Harry Truman was a coward who'd betrayed America and needed to be overthrown and executed. And the crowds would just howl for blood. I was downtown with my daughter once when one of these rallies was happening, and it got so scary that she started crying. When they lit the effigy of President Truman on fire, she just bawled, and I had to put my hands over her eyes and just lead her away. I hope I never live through anything like that again." End quote. At naval bases up and down the west coast, morale suffered gravely. As ships swung to anchor and crews watched the social fabric unravel, the muttering grew louder and louder. The command structure, both on individual ships and within the fleet in general, tried to quell the unrest, arguing that this was just a pause and that a new mission would be coming forth soon. Within the rest of the American military apparatus, a different brand of unrest began to stir. Why was this inaction being tolerated? And why had all of the efforts to counter the creatures been routed through the Navy? The one hero this struggle had produced was an Air Corps pilot, for God's sake. The passage of the National Security Act earlier in the year had established the Air Force as a separate service branch and reorganized the top leadership structure of the military. To wit, in September 1947, motivated partly by grumbling within the government about how the way the structure of the American military was hampering the conflict with the sea monsters, the National Security Act drastically reformed the structure of the American military. The act's biggest changes involved splitting the Air Force away from the Army and into its own branch, 
and replacing separate cabinet-level secretaries of war and the navy with the new position of secretary of defense. The Joint Chiefs of Staff, a decision-making body below the Secretary of Defense, made up of high-ranking members of each service branch, was also established. Throughout the newly created Air Force, the grumbling was intense. Why not let the Air Force off the leash? Sea monsters couldn't do anything to planes. The discontent worked its way up the chain of command, reaching the freshly born Joint Chiefs of Staff. General Hoyt Vandenberg, the first Chief of Staff of the U.S. Air Force, argued forcefully that new air-based operations should be considered. After letting Vandenberg bluster for 15 minutes, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Omar Bradley, told him bluntly to knock it off that the President and Secretary Forrestal were quite aware that the Air Force existed and that if they wanted to explore an Air Force option, they would issue orders to do so. The Far East swung back into the public consciousness in September, when the Soviet Occupation Authority in South Korea announced, in language virtually identical to the previous announcement in Japan, that a plebiscite would be conducted on the unification of the Korean Peninsula under the Pyongyang government. The vote, conducted later that very week, passed overwhelmingly, and the southern half of Korea slid under the yoke of Soviet influence. Although this development caused great alarm in Washington, the majority of the country let it pass without much notice. The average person on the street was much more concerned with the recession and unrest than with geopolitical dominoes falling on the far side of an uncrossable ocean full of monsters. The nation as a whole took much more interest, though, on October 3rd, 1947, when General Arthur Peters, Hawaii's disgruntled military governor, speaking on a hastily scheduled radio broadcast, announced the secession of Hawaiian territory from the United States, citing the mother country's, quote, unconscionable decision to leave formerly patriotic Americans in the lurch in our time of greatest peril, end quote. Peters announced the People's Republic of Hawaii as a sovereign nation with its own foreign policy and called for, quote, nations of courage and goodwill to render what foreign aid they see fit in order to earn considerable gratitude and strategic opportunities in the crossroads of the Pacific, end quote. Peter's remarks were widely seen as being aimed directly at Moscow, a charge he didn't bother to deflect in a subsequent news conference. Quote, After the United States has abandoned Hawaii, we are ready to accept the help of any nations interested in lending a hand, no matter what our previous situation was with them. And if someone helps us rebuild our port facilities and then finds a use for them, well, gratitude is gratitude." End quote. Peters' actions stirred yet more unrest in an already teetering United States. Public sentiment ran overwhelmingly against him. He was burned in effigy in Trenton and Miami, replacing the president as the nation's favorite figure to burn, but with an undercurrent of additional public hostility towards Harry Truman for allowing this to happen. For his part, Truman denounced Peters' action, warned the Soviets of dire consequences if they responded to Peters' overtures, and ordered the general to be investigated and tried for treason in absentia. But as a practical matter, there was nothing the president could do, and this knowledge ate at him. In the Pacific, an unquiet calm held. After the decision not to provide support for convoys or shipping on the open ocean, 
Secretary Forrestal ordered Admirals Nimitz, who, by the way, digression here, um, Nimitz would resign as CNO in December of 1947, a broken man, and afterwards die of a massive stroke in November of 1948. Anyway, Forrestal ordered Admirals Nimitz and Spruance um, to reconfigure the American naval forces in the Pacific into an entirely defensive posture, protecting West Coast ports and nothing more. Uh, another aside here, by the way, uh, sorry for all these, but throughout the crisis, the Atlantic fleet just went about its business as usual, uh, maintaining a presence to counter Soviet fleet action in the North Atlantic, not much else. There was periodic discussion of transferring ships from the Atlantic to the Pacific as the crisis mounted, but the uh, destruction of the West Locks of the Panama Canal rendered this possibility essentially moot. Within the Navy, those serving in the Pacific uh, both derided and envied those doing the substantially easier work in the Atlantic. Anyway, in the West, most of the American naval strength that had been previously distributed throughout the Pacific had by now been recalled to the West Coast. The arrival of Halsey's battered typhoon force and some Pearl Harbor escapees to San Diego and San Francisco augmented this. The admirals drastically redrew the American naval command structure to support the new role of pure coastal defense. The designation's 3rd and 7th fleets were maintained, but with entirely new operational areas and missions. 7th Fleet, formerly stationed in the Western Pacific, was now the defensive force huddled around the Washington and Oregon coasts and coordinating with the Canadian Navy. 3rd Fleet guarded the California coast and a bit of northern Mexico. However, these designations were largely organizational. Previously, it wasn't uncommon for ships in a named fleet to sail together in a unified body, as in Halsey's Third Fleet expedition to New Caledonia. In the new coastal defense plan, the ships were scattered up and down the coast. Their actual deployment consisted of smaller task forces, generally built around a handful of capital ships assigned to defend individual ports. Within the Navy, the reconfiguration was met with skepticism, quote, this is literally just putting the deck chairs on the Titanic into a nice new configuration, end quote, noted Rich Trumbull in his journal. But by and large, the crews on the ships were glad to be doing something. Quote, I wish we could get back out there and try to take back some of our own, Chief Petty Officer Charles Burns of the destroyer USS James told the Associated Press. But by God, at least we're not just sitting around letting barnacles grow on the hull, end quote. A handful of fanciful new weapon systems began to make their way out into the fleet at this time, feverishly dreamed up by ONI and Syncpac's Trumbull Group as stopgap ways to overcome the deficiencies of their traditional anti-ship weapons against sea creatures. The most dramatic of these was the so-called Ring of Fire, a contraption that was essentially an enormous ring of gas burners pointing outward from the deck of a ship outfitted with the device. Controllable from a central console, the burners could be turned on selectively to discourage octopus and kraken-type creatures from gripping the hull, or to dislodge them if they'd already taken hold. Along the same lines, but less dramatic, was the hull razor, a series of sharpened ridges running along the hull and outward from deck railings, again with the idea of discouraging tentacles from making contact. A variation of this, the hedgehog hull, was also tried, welding sharpened steel spikes into the hulls and superstructures of ships. And finally, there was the electric deck defense, 
a pair of enormous electrodes which could be jabbed into the meat of a tentacle and then connected to a 30,000 volt capacitor. All of these systems had their value, but none were perfect. The Ring of Fire was prone to disastrous explosion, especially when vigorous tentacle action ruptured its gas lines. The destroyer Moore lost 23 men to a particularly vicious deck fire triggered by the ship's Ring of Fire system. The electric deck defense similarly suffered from disastrous short circuit discharges in heavy seas when highly conductive salt water swamped the deck. The hull razor was much less prone to catastrophic accidents, but the general accidental casualty rate on any ship mounted with hull razors tended to go up as the combination of winded wave with omnipresent razor-sharp edges proved problematic. Along the same lines, the hedgehog hull concept was slowly abandoned after several sailors were impaled while working on deck in heavy weather. Still, these systems were of some use and marked a significant evolution in the race to rethink the way the Navy dealt with the sea creatures. At the personal level, regulations and practices through the Navy were updated to protect sailors and ships. Starting in June 1947, Sailors on all blue water naval vessels were issued marine combat knives, which they were required to keep on their persons at all times when on duty. The idea was that if a tentacled creature gripped the hull of a vessel, nearby sailors could attack it en masse with their knives and possibly get it to disengage. The new regulation was widely met with eye rolls among the fleet, although many sailors did enjoy referring to their new blades as their cutlasses. The knives never really made much of an impact in actual contact with the sea creatures, but the image of a sailor in shipboard blues with a large knife strapped to his right hip did become part of the public iconography of the conflict. Low-level encounters between the defensive ships and lesser to mid-level sea creatures continued throughout the back half of 1947, generally ending inconclusively. The new defensive scheme received a much more vigorous test in December, when El Polpo and a diminished kelp man still showing grievous wounds from Dennis Young's suicide dive at Pearl Harbor, led a group of lesser creatures in a concerted attack on Astoria, Oregon. After a pitched battle that included multiple uses of the battleship Nevada's electric deck defense and the deployment of literally hundreds of destroyer depth charges, the creatures were driven off, but not before the kelp man managed to inflict significant damage to Astoria's port facilities. Fearing that the defensive posture would not be enough if creatures attempted an all-out attack on a major west coast port, President Truman had been weighing the possibility of evacuating the entire coast for five miles inland. He had held off on this out of fear of deepening the already endemic mass panic and unrest. After the Astoria standoff, notions of evacuation were entirely set aside. The creatures owned the open ocean, but it, but it appeared that the Navy could keep them out of the ports, for the most part at least. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Please join me next week as we uh, start looking at what happens when a person tries to run for re-election as president when he's been losing a war to sea monsters. See you then. Be well. Them squids they didn't think about Just who they was attacking Wanker boys Get out there and bust them crackins I almost feel sorry For them serpents we've been tracking Battle stations boys Get out there and bust them crackins Line up all them battleships And send us seafood packing 
Train them guns out, boys. Get out there and bust them crackins. Anchors away, son. <laughs>